What ho, folks! I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the second season of the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles. Each episode I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode I've invited my friend and Little White Lies colleague Hannah Strong to talk to me. She's chosen Lynn Ramsey's Morven Calla. Here's a trailer to give you a taste of the film. Everywhere, so stop dreaming. Hi, Hannah. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Good. Um, so you've chosen Morphin Colour by Lynn Ramsey for us to talk about. Why is the first question, I suppose. Yeah, it's I, I guess because when you asked me about doing the podcast and said just pick a British film, it's literally kind of the first um, film I thought of. Uh, I, I And then I kind of like... I thought more than colour and then I could sort of all the other like amazing British films and then I just thought you know what go with your initial choice because it's always I think the film you care about the most is the one you picked to begin with um but yeah Lynn, Lynn Ramsey I think is one of the most vital voices we have in um UK film despite the fact that we were just talking about the fact she only made four films um which I'm sure we'll get on to why that's the case um later on in the podcast but yeah I think she's a really singular talent and more than color is one of those films that i just since i watched it and i came to it quite late it was probably the third film of hers that i actually watched but since i saw it i've never kind of been able to shake it i think it's really like i to sound very cheesy but it's it, you know it really changed me as a person more than <laughs> and um i think it's it's always good with filmmakers to kind of go back to the beginning i think in a way and um although it wasn't her first film it's probably the one that a lot of people associate with or certainly people who are outside of the kind of Hollywood bubble when you say Lynn Ramsey like oh yeah Morven Cal is the name they go to um 
and I also kind of wanted a chance to talk about Samantha Morton, who again I think is like a wonderful, wonderful woman and um, has had to deal with so much shit in the industry and just beyond the industry. So yeah, it, it felt like a nice, uh, nice chance to give some love to a kind of real gem of the British film industry and talk about female relationships on screen. I think it's a really interesting portrayal of uh, friendship. Um, yeah, I think I could ramble all day about <laughs> what, why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, it's, it's strange because I also like came to this one third. I think I, the first one I saw was You Were Never Really Here, which I saw very late one evening uh, of the Cambridge Film Festival. So I don't really rem- remember that film. Um, <laughs> I know you're a big fan of that one. Yeah, I'm literally sat in front of three separate posters. For it. <laughs> yeah, was, my room is like half Adam Sandler shrine, half Joaquin Phoenix in You Were Never Really Here shrine. It's, it's a bit... I remember one time someone came over and they walked into my room and just went... There's a lot going on in here, which is like the, the best review possible. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of that film. Yeah, I should, I, should, <laughs> I should probably w- watch it again, because as I say, I did not watch it in the best <laughs> circumstances. I think I'd seen like six films that day as well. So I was just like, I want to go to bed Fest- now, please. Festival viewing is so like, it can either, it can either like mean that something really, really stays with you or that it just totally like completely passes you Absolutely. by because you you're in that state of like oh I've got to fit in you know another three films or oh it's coming right at the end of a really busy day so yeah I'd, al- I'd, I'd also to- just sat through film stars don't die in Liverpool which is like long and very twee <laughs> and quite <laughs> quite dull like, uh, and then it was that, like that's <laughs> A real switch of vibe yep. there. It, re- it, it, re- it really was. Um, and then I watched. Flash. Yeah, and then I watched. We need to talk about Kevin because when it came out, I was too young to watch it, and I remember seeing it like clips of it at the Baftas and being scared by the idea of it. So it was like one of these films I sort <laughs> I sort of pushed away. But I um, <laughs> um, but being a massive Tilda Swinton fan, I did eventually um, come to see it. And then I saw more than Keller last year I think for the first time um and then Ratcatcher today for the first time so I I finally caught up but in (laughs) reverse order I think it's interesting start starting with uh, her as her sort of American films and then going back to her Scottish ones um and what I think I've learned is that I absolutely love the Scottish ones and have I don't really have feelings towards the American ones I like we need to talk about Kevin but I don't it didn't move me in perhaps the way that Ratcatcher and Morphin Color have done. What do you think of like that transition that she made from sort of sort of Ken Loach style filmmaking to something a bit more mainstream? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I I think there are a few filmmakers who have made I mean we talk a lot about filmmakers going Hollywood and you know kind of making that transition and so many filmmakers British filmmakers do hop across the pond and then everything kind of shifts completely um and definitely I think you can see the kind of the money (laughs) the money floods in and she gets a budget and you know kind of everything changes but the first the first film I saw was uh, of hers was we need to talk about Kevin I was at a very impressionable age. Um, I was 19, I was in my first year of university. And I remember going to the, um, I walked from my student halls to the Hyde Park Pitch House in Leeds 
and I went to see this film knowing nothing about it other than I really really loved Tilda Swinton and you know thought well if she's in it it's going to be good so got to go and see it um and that is the worst possible way you could go and watch when you talk about Kevin because I didn't know how that ended and um I no. was <laughs> oh I didn't know what that film was about and I came out of it like I remember you know this is a good like nearly 10 years ago now and I remember walking home in this kind of like just fugue state I was so emotionally like crippled by what I had just seen and so confused and you know it really really had a very deep impact on me and I don't think I'd ever quite seen filmmaking like that either because Mm. um a lot of like the filmmakers I kind of when I first started getting into film I was very like I was the proper like cinema film bro I was like Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, uh The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola, I was I was I, I always laugh at those like memes about film bros because that was literally 16 year old me and then I watched um well it often happened I mean I, 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 I sort of started off the same way because like I'd get Empire and those are the films that it tells yeah, you were the best films exactly. ever made and I talked to exactly. like the, the people who I would talk to about film were like my dad's friends and they're all like oh you have to see <laughs> Pulp Fiction because it's the best film ever made and, I'm like, <laughs> and I didn't actually really have opinions on those films until later on um, I'm glad I sort of started off with that because it is like what most people are familiar with but now I just I watch those films and I'm like this is just racist and misogynistic and I do not feel comfortable <laughs> watching this film. <laughs> um, it is like it is fascinating that I think so many um kind of I mean, you're a little bit younger than me, but so many um, British film fans probably did kind of come of age on the same films, not because mm. we were like particularly interested in like, you know, um, Pulp Fiction or Gangs of New York or whatever, but just because those were the films that we, that, that you know, Empire, I was an Empire subscriber for about four years from being 14 to 18. And mm. those were the films that were not only like, kind of prescribed but that were like available that were winning yeah. the awards that were on television on film four and I, I would tape them onto the um onto VHS and later on to like the DVR and you know I think it's interesting that when you kind of get out of um that environment and go away to university you start to really like have access to these other films and you know before I was 18 I wasn't going to cinema uh, well, I was going to cinema on my own, but it was with my friends, and my friends would have killed me if I'd dragged them to go and see when you saw Kevin. It would have been like friendship over. I remember we went to the social network, and that was like quite enough for them. Mm. They were like, <laughs> I don't think so, Hannah. You're not allowed to choose the films anymore. Um, but then, yeah, when you kind of have that freedom for the first time, the things that you gravitate towards because you're like, oh, I like Tilda Clinton. <laughs> or, yeah. I mean, for me, it also depends you know. on like what, what the cinemas were because at university there was, oh. a pic- there was a picture house so I could go and see a Lynn Ramsey film when it when it came out. But when it, <laughs> um, growing up, there's an Odeon and that is it. <laughs> so if, you, if it's not like the new Bond film or Marvel or whatever, then it's just not going to get shown um absolutely absolutely yeah i I think that makes a big that makes a big change in like yeah because i think Mm. i've talked a lot with with people doing these podcasts about like how people can see these films and how people approach them and it's like you're not gonna just like end up in the cinema watching more than (laughs) color it's it's just it it, unless unless you're in like 
the film festival circuit or you're like looking out for this kind of film it's not going to be like one of the first films that you you sort of come across I think no no I think um unless unless you kind of grow up in like like somewhere like London where there is definitely way more access or with a family who are interested in the arts and I love my family dearly but we're not like an art family like my grandma is and and but she's not a film person. She's like an opera and like ballet person. So she would take me to see the opera and the ballet, but she wouldn't ever like, we went to see Chicken Run and that. I think that was the last time she took me to see a film. To be fair, great choice. Can't fault that at all. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting. That, like when I talk to my mum about films now, um, there, she, she likes films, but she's not like a cinephile by any means. But I remember talking to her about, we need to talk about Kevin. And kind of the things that she like picks up on about films are so different from the things that I'm picking up on. She's just like, well, it's just a very sad story, wasn't it? And I was like, yeah, but, but like, give, give me more, give me more. She's like, well, you know. And the Uncut Gems, my favourite thing ever is my mum at the end of Uncut Gems just said, well, you know, I think Adam Sandler should probably get some awards recognition. And I was like, I mean, yeah, yeah, you're correct. But just the kind of like, that that like I liked it and therefore I can't like understand why um the film industry doesn't recognize it thing Mm. that I see like not people that aren't involved in the industry and don't know all that kind of like inside baseball talk I find it very like very fun to have those kind of conversations but but yeah I was so I I had been this naive little 19 year old who went off to see we need to talk about Kevin thinking I was just gonna kind of get like a Tilda Swinton drama and not be like emotionally crippled and kind of terrified of John C. Riley and uh actually no John C. Riley's fine in that film. Is Ezra Miller you're gonna be ter- terrified. <laughs> it, it was it was definitely <laughs> Ezra Miller, yeah. I remember being very scared of Ezra Miller despite the fact that he's like it seems like quite a lovely person in real life. Mm. I mean <laughs> it was very like different for me, difficult for me to disassociate having watched this like cold, calculating mm hell child in Kevin and then seeing like Perks of Inner Wallflower yes. which is one of my favorite books and I was like this is like total kind of cognitive distance here I can't I can't get over it but yeah, yeah I, I watched this film and thought yeah amazing great love it <laughs> never bothered to watch more than Callow I guess because it's I didn't I I don't know what what the reason was I think I just kind of didn't think about it too deeply I, I, ju- I just thought well I like Beautiful Mark Kevin that was the end of the thought there was nothing else that came after that I think at the time I had a massive like recency preference and I much preferred watching new films as in like things Mm. that were coming out and I kind of didn't like looking backwards um yeah took me a while to catch up I think it was after I saw You Were Never Really Here which um again I had a very similar experience in that I was at a I went to cinema thinking I was going to get a Joaquin Phoenix movie and came out like emotionally like, again crippled and that film's like 65 minutes or, yeah no, it's, it's really not, it's short it, it is short it's a short film and I and it was like I'd been clubbed over the back of the head by the end of it I just felt so um kind of distraught I remember crying it was I was I, I watched it at the um it was either a picture house at Picture Central or the BFI, it was one of the two during London Film Festival, and um, it was after it had won um, the prizes in Cannes. And I remember, like, I was very, very excited for it, but kind of hadn't read any reviews, so 
so I really did again didn't know what I was my thing with Lynn Ramsey is just like not go, knowing what I'm getting myself into mm. um I think much like her character sometimes I just go in with this total ignorance and then come out like oh my god like how do I continue my life now knowing that the story <laughs> is like yeah. taking up um space but um it's yeah I guess it, it's it's interesting that we both came to her American films before we mm. went back to her Scottish films which I think is, if I think it whilst we obviously can tell that it's the same filmmaker I think if someone had just presented me with the, those four films with no context I, I think I probably would have a hard time realizing that it's the same yeah. person who made those first two and then those second two definitely and I think you really have to kind of look for the little motifs and recurring ideas and recurring themes because she's very good at like making those connections between her work but she is definitely someone who over the course of what is it, it 20 years now since yeah. she made rat catcher just just under just over um just over, she, I think, I think yeah. she's she's changed quite a lot as a filmmaker and it is like kind of stunningly different to see um a film like Ratcatcher and then a film that like you would never really hear is like the two different filmmakers here um but I think she's she's been through been through it so much with with her filmmaking career and kind of been messed around I think it, there's a lot of like I don't want to say anger but I think there's definitely some kind of like there's something there's something that I think changes after more than maybe after more than Cal but before we need to talk about Kevin mm. um I'd love to kind of like properly sit down and like you know um zodiac this and like plot it all out and kind of try and work out like what's changed because I think there is definitely there's a definite shift but it would be hard to kind of for us to just plot that in the, yeah. in the course of an hour what what exactly <laughs> happened but yeah I, yeah I I I definitely I'm I'm repeating myself now but I think that yeah there is like a very strong change a switch that happens not not for the worst or anything it's just it's just very different yeah, I suppose all of the films have in common the fact that they do leave you feeling sort of hit over the head by them. <laughs> they they all have this real, really quite disturbing element to them. Actually, I I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's why I, I have mixed feelings about We Need to Talk About Kevin, because it made me feel so uncomfortable to the point where I wasn't sure if I wanted to, or if the film had any <laughs> right to make me feel that way. And I think I had that same battle with myself watching Ratcatcher because the animal, the scenes with animals, I find really distressing. Oh yeah, um, I my heart was in the mouth in my mouth for the entirety of the mouth scene because you're just waiting for something horrible to happen. Yeah. and I, I, I mean, I think that's a theme in all her that that anticipation of something horrible happening is like very strong in all her films. Especially once you know who is the filmmaker, you're like, I'm just waiting for something terrible. It's like Michael Haneke, you're just waiting. You're, you're constantly like, something horrible is going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen or what it's going to be. But yeah, in, the, in, in Ratcatcher, I think it is especially, the animal stuff is especially like, and because they're children as well, I think it, just always, yes, it feels like inherently worse. There's probably, again, another reason that we need to talk about Kevin is so disturbing because anything with children, I'm immediately mm. more alert. And the performances, I think, in both Ratcatcher and We Need to Work Kevin, given by the, the kids or kid in We Need to Work Kevin, are so, so good, like cre- creepily good, that kids yeah. can be so kind of brutal and conniving and eerie on command. I just <laughs> always amazed that, that uh, when a performance calls for kids to be really like 
like that and they they managed to pull it off so well i mean in rat catcher it's all so naturalistic it's you know it feels like she's just gone out on a estate in, in glasgow with a camera and the film kids she, kind of... into that she has these like little surreal touches like i mean the, the most obvious one i think is the, is the mouse flying to the moon yeah. which is which is spectacular so um but so in morvan kala sort of does that at times I, i'm thinking in particular of the scene where she chops up mm. i'm always confused is it her boyfriend or her, were they married i, I don't know is i think it it's her boyfriend boyfriend yeah when she like cuts him up in the bath and she puts on sunglasses and sort of puts on her um is it a walkman it's some sort of yeah portable um audio device that she's like taped to her body to and then the blood's like coming up and the music's playing and it's sort of like american psycho comedy where it's like this yeah. sort of incongruous music and it's so out of place in the rest of the film also to say not in the least possibly impossible to to chop up a body as she does with like what she has in the kitchen um <laughs> but i don't think that i don't think that matters because there are things throughout the film which are just slightly odd or unrealistic and it makes you question what the reality of it is i mean i'm sure you'll know that the the, the scene where she's like offered a hundred thousand pounds as a first time writer and that they're like we'll just give you the check and it's just like no that does not yeah. that does not <laughs> i think that line between like real and fantasy in her films is so blurred and mm. you know like we were talking about the, the, the mouse scene in rat catcher she's so brilliant and a real moment of like levity amid amid this like quite brutal and unrelenting film and and there are other moments like that in the film but yeah like you say the scene in Morphin Cow which I think for anyone who's seen Morphin Cow that is the scene they intimately will think of is the playing there and the velvet underground so I'm sticking with you That's it. whilst yes. you're dismembering <laughs> this body and it's just such a like I mean the music choice alone is hilarious yeah. and, and very like darkly funny but then yeah obviously the more you think about it the more you think well that's just not possible and and like you said there's all these little touches where you're kind of questioning okay well how much of this is actual like is the truth and how much of it is just more than kind of like projecting mm -hmm. and especially because the book is about her like yeah I mean she, I, I I'm hoping that everyone listening to this will have seen the film but a spoiler alert for like a 20 year old film if you haven't um she um, there are no spoilers her... when, when we're talking about <laughs> this old. um she went after her boyfriend commits suicide she steals his he leaves his novel on a floppy disk and mm. says can you send this to the publisher and she steals it and i think that the idea of like um authorship i guess and like creating a narrative is like at play in that film you know she has that whole conversation where she's trying to like convince the publisher that she wrote the book and it's it's very like we, as we, I, I can't help but feel very like sorry for her and very like kind of sympathetic towards her even though you know she's chopped up her her boyfriend's body and you know stolen his novel and got gone off on this jolly with her best mate to Spain and I think we see it as well in um you were never really here of course the final shot in that film which I'm I won't say what that is because I guess that film's more recent but yeah that that line between between what we're seeing and what we can actually think yeah. must be true is so like so blurred in her films and I think it's kind of one of the things that makes me so drawn to her as a filmmaker I always love filmmakers that deal with um magical realism and like the idea of things being kind of 
the 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 impossible made possible is something I I'm very like I love it when filmmakers especially filmmakers kind of known for being very realistic do that like the the Saki brothers are two of my favorite filmmakers and they do it as well a lot in their films um in heaven knows what and in Uncut Gems I think as well there's real elements of like fantasticalism to these stories and I don't I don't know what it is I think I'd have to really like think about it but I think I think some somewhere down the line that idea of like incredible things happening and like yeah the mundanity of everyday life being like completely um tossed out the window is mm. just really really appeals to me I really like I really like it and it, it's strange because I, I also love realism I, I you know I really like a, a good old-fashioned kitchen sink drama but then I, I really I, I don't know there's just something very um that really I don't know what it is like I, I don't even want to say fun because I don't think that yeah. Mormon Cows is taking fun film but I think it's just it's just doing something. That, um, it's, it's 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 refusing to be categorized in the way that I think a lot of yeah. critics sometimes like reading the reviews of 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 Marvin Keller, and it's like, well, there's some incongruities here, and it doesn't all make sense, and it's not all entirely <laughs> naturalistic. What what was this woman doing? And it's like, no, you have to just you just have to go along with it. You just have to be open to the possibility that what you're watching might not be completely reliable. And I think that's fascinating because there aren't enough filmmakers that are willing to to sort of rely on an audience to go along with them in in that mm. way and I think it's those sort that sort of like putting my defenses up this isn't this isn't real what's what's going on here it's but <laughs> I mean obviously in in Ratcatcher you just can't do that in the, the sequence we say because if you do then it's like well yeah obviously <laughs> you can't take it seriously <laughs> but it's just it's it's the way that she manages to sort of flick a switch almost without telling you that it's going to happen and suddenly we're in the mind of the character so in that yeah. in the case in that case it's the mind of of the boy who's sort of sending snowball up on the balloon and in in Morvan Caller it's it's seeing it from from her perspective um and then we're out again and um she does the same thing with Tilda Swinter in, in we need to talk about <laughs> Kevin um and and yeah as you say the the final scene of you were never really here which which I mean, the title itself indicates that it's like, well, what what have we just seen? What 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 was real and what what wasn't? It's yeah, I think it's I really think, fascinating. Like that, that title could easily apply to any of her films as well, because so much, <laughs> so much of her films is about like this, almost this feeling of um, being outside of your own person and watching things happening. I'm trying to remember what that's called, um, uh, disassociation, I guess, and like yeah. these all four of her like primary characters in her films are like undergoing some sort of huge upheaval in their life mm -hmm. which has kind of forced them to recalibrate everything whether it is this kid who's kind of struggling to make sense of um the death of his friend which mm -hmm. kind of may or may not be his fault and then obviously all his family kind of turmoil that's going on or the kind of um the relationship in um more than Keller or events <laughs> like we're saying it. the the, uh, the events of um, when you talk about Kevin or obviously uh, you were never really here I think there is like this idea of how we respond to a great trauma in our lives mm -hmm. and a lot of people do respond to a great trauma by like com completely refusing to address it or like addressing it but in a kind of um, unhealthy manner and I think that yeah. she 
she's maybe not a filmmaker that I think people would immediately think of as like having a lot to say about um about trauma and about uh, you know how death and guilt like shape a person but actually when you like look at all of her films all her feature films anyway that there there is like a kind of there's a through line there I think definitely and I mentioned on today when I was I just just idly posting on Twitter and I was thinking about the idea of water in her films and I think this probably goes into it this idea of like um baptism and cleansing that is like through all the films we see characters like washing each other or trying to drown themselves in a lake in, in the case yeah, of the sort of cl- close to death experiences that that they undergo and that they 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 put themselves so put themselves mm. into mm. yeah yeah it's, i'm kind of amazed that morvan Caller doesn't have one actually well so, it's i suppose it's sort of there's, there's a trope in 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 particularly in Hollywood cinema, sort of having one's head uh, into water and then mm. sort of the life flashing before their eyes type imagery. Um, and I think that, that that's how all of these these films operate on a sort of, because not only are we unsure of what's real and what's not real, we're also unsure sometimes of when things are happening and in what order, because the non-linearity of it. And I think, I think, I mean, as speaking as someone who who has PTSD, I think that you do experience things in that way. And sometimes the past and the present can sort of overlap with each mm. other. And there is a an element of, of um, fantasizing about what a future might might be as well. Um, where, I mean, it's possible to see Morvan Caller as this, as one sort, sort of, the, 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 the trauma that happens at the start and she's sort of, you know, sat in her apartment with her dead boyfriend on the floor that actually, the, the the process that she then undergoes is sort of some sort of idealized version of what she thinks could happen I mean I don't mm. want to say that nothing in Morvan Caller is is real but may, maybe it is just like she sat on the sofa smoking and listening to music and imagining like I'm gonna go off to Spain with the money that he would have spent on his funeral and and get a hundred thousand pounds for this book um yeah I I, I think that it's it's interesting that all of these films have a trauma in them. The trauma, we see the trauma perhaps at different times or places in Morvan Keller. We, it's taken place before the events of the film in Ratcatcher. It's slightly mm. into the film. We need to talk about Kevin. It's at the end of the film, but we're what we're starting with it having already happened. What's the trauma in you and never really? <laughs> I can't remember. Well, it, well <laughs> this, is, this is the thing, I think it's, so in you never hear um, we get these like flashbacks which reveal that he um was abused as a child. That's it. And yeah. I knew there was something um, I get a place. Yeah. yeah sorry. And and he'd been in, in uh, been involved in um he I I I can't quite remember because I've not seen it in a while if he was like a um like FBI or something. Right. Just yeah. a shot where he uh, opens the back of the van and there's the um the girls who have clearly been uh, trafficked and it's kind of him like you know the way that he's processing this trauma is by um not only like what he does for a living but also like we see we see a couple of times like there's the shot where he has the plastic bag over his head and again that's a, that's a film where I feel like it's very difficult to tell how much of it is him projecting and how much of it is um actually happening and then that final scene which I think is such a like she, she we'll get more into this in a second but like she's such a master of just like really beautiful moments in her films that really like stay with you even amid all that kind of like violence and she does make incredibly violent films I think as well which which, um, I guess makes a lot of people very uncomfortable because less so now but I think when she was kind of first 
cutting her teeth. I think women who made very violent films were kind of seen as like, oh, it's a bit repulsive in a way. Like, what's this nice young woman doing making all these really <laughs> awful violent movies? But yeah, I love this idea of like these characters trying, like these films are about people trying to process trauma in, in kind of whatever way makes sense to them. And it doesn't, it, it almost kind of doesn't, matter if people find that like palatable or not because it's not really about them it's, you know it's um it's it's maybe why I feel so defensive about her, her films as well because I think that they're so they're such like pure expressions of her as like an artist they, they feel so kind of untampered with the amount of I remember when um it was announced she was going to be directing Jane Got a Gun the right, um yeah. uh, the Natalie Portman um western and I remember following that for like all that story um, about, you know, all the kind of updates on it for a, a good long time. I think it was it was like in development hell for about three years or something. And then it was kind of all kind of basically came out that um, there'd been huge like disagreements between how she wanted to tell the story and how the studio wanted her to tell the story. And it was just a, a total mess. And I think there was another project. Oh, The Lovely Bones, of course. Yes. Um, where she was meant to make um that adapt that and it all kind of blew up and in the end it was handed off to uh, peter jackson and <laughs> we got what we got um yep. <laughs> i think it's you know she's clearly someone who um has had to put up with a lot of like bullshit from the film industry and has, has always like refused to kind of compromise her vision and i think it's so rare that we actually like get to see filmmakers who will like put their you know put their foot down and say like yeah well this is a film I'm making like it or not and I I, I think the thing kind of mysterious about her I said something I can't quite get my you know get get to grips with I think she she mm. keeps a real like and almost as intimate as her films are there, there still kind of feels like a distance between like us as the audience and her as a filmmaker um that really like just fascinates me I just She's someone that I would love to like sit down with, but at the same time would be kind of terrified of. Like, right. I think yes. just, there's something like a bit, yeah, a bit a, a, that, that scares me a bit. I think because she does create these like very, very like, it's not even the violence. It's just the, the kind of the brutality, I think more than violence that really like sticks with me. All these like the moment in Morgan Calais in the bathroom, which is such a like, the, there's such a peculiar like intimacy Mm-hmm. to the scene where Morgan's um chopping up her dead boyfriend um but uh, yeah I mean that like juxtaposition really like I think that's one of the things about her stuff I can't like I keeps me like coming back I can't look away from it the way that she like is able to kind of hold those those two things in her hand and in the case of um you never really hear it's this real like image of like total purity and then like horrific brutality <laughs> and Again, like we have that moment on the CCTV cameras where mm-hmm. Joe is um, in the um, the house where these girls, yes. these young girls, have been used uh, by sex traffickers, and it's she's playing this like really like dreamy like uh, old song, and he's like going around like very methodically like killing everyone, and it's just that that real like stark kind of uh, mm-hmm. contrast that she's such a master of in all her films, in in Ratcatcher as well. She's very like she's very very good at the old needle drops as well. Yes. Very good 
at deploying music at crucial moments yeah and it will sort of lull you into a false sense of security thing oh I like this song and then it's like <laughs> oh I don't like what I'm what I'm seeing though <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely which is such a like loads of filmmakers do it you know it's, it's a yeah. very like kind of well-worn thing but she she's a very she's very very she does it very well very yeah. skillful mm. and very funny I think as well very underrated in terms of her sense of humor but that moment in um you never really hear when uh joe shoots the um the agent that's sent to his house mm. to kill him and they're lying on the floor together singing i've been to paradise and it's just like it's again like it's a real moment of like tenderness and with all this brutality but also just like the way that Joaquin Phoenix like starts like mumbling afterwards it's, like, it's just very funny at the same time yes and I think she's you know the the that kind of peculiarity in her films is very um again something that I think is very masterfully put out and I, I guess as well watching We Need to Talk About Kevin was one of the first times I'd been exposed to a female character on screen who I deeply disliked mm. but at the same time was like completely fascinated by mm. and very very like drawn to and I mean I have to say credit to Lionel Shriver like normally no credit at all to Lionel Shriver but like <laughs> I was gonna say um, <laughs> no, no credit at all normally no, but, um, you know, the the you know it was based on her book and mm. you know she kind of was the genesis of this character but having read the book I think that Tilda's performance is the only kind of um performance that could have been I think she brings mm. so much of her magic shall we call it I don't know what it is her what her, her something to her her je ne sais quoi to uh, to that film but mm. it's you know she's a, I, I I I feel like the idea of the unlikable female character has become like a whole trope in its own thing yeah Elizabeth Moss has been like, owning it in recent years yeah Exactly, and doing a wonderful job, but just like the idea of like, I, I feel like we're going to reach a point in the next few years where it's like unlikable for the sake of it is going to be a right. thing. It's just, yeah. I'm worried. I'm worried about where it's going. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, Lynn Ramsey's been doing that for so long and doing it mm. so well. I think particularly Morven Callow, like Morven is, as I already said, she's a, <laughs> you're, you feel you know, she's this tiny kind of like, there's a, there's a real vulnerability to her. And I think that part of that comes from Samantha Morton who is yes a really like she has this great fragility as a performer even now like when I watch her and things I think part of it is like you know she's got these really big eyes and just always kind of looks like little baby bird and she's got a very soft voice as well very like yeah she sounds really like kind of that conversation in the beginning of the film when she's on the phone mm. you know she sounds like she sounds vulnerable <laughs> um and then that's kind of juxtaposed with all these like really misguided things she does in the film and I guess the thing that like really appealed to me about her character in the first time I watched it was that like yearning to just be someone else be somewhere else it's so familiar to me and so kind of relatable I mean I'm not saying that I would do it exactly as she does it but you you kind of understand (laughs) a little bit where she's coming from I don't think anyone's (laughs) going to be like saying oh well this this film must be Lynn Ramsey processing something um that you know her own her own trauma to like the extent to which we need to read biography into a film like this I mean maybe maybe that's because it's it's based on a book and we and you know it's quite easy to to say well 
this is Alan Warner's story mm. it's not my story so yeah <laughs> um that is interesting isn't it because I think as well I mean she's been since Ratcatcher all of her films have been based on books um or short stories and yeah it, it isn't a, a thing that people usually level at her mm. um I think maybe also because we don't really I mean maybe there's more out there but I think she's a very private person you don't really ever right. hear yeah. like kind of about her life I think she's very good at um um, giving too much of herself away which I mean personally I think you know give or don't give as much of yourself away as you want as a filmmaker or as a person it's up to you completely but yeah I think also like just the kind of maybe the kind of film she makes people don't think like that it could be about herself because it's so it seems so far removed like I mean you never really hear because it is like you know it's Joaquin Phoenix playing this gun for hire who's rescuing victims of sexual trafficking um so I think people there's so much kind of other stuff that people focus on they don't think like hmm well hmm, I wonder if this tells us something about the filmmaker themselves um which is I, I mean I'm sure that she loves it that way that people would rather yeah. talk about like the kind of the, the films themselves and it's but it, it's, it seems I, quite I, a good way to sort of get rid of that because it's such a lazy form of criticism and which has like it is, this yeah. because it's, it's almost always leveled against women as well so it's this sort of oh, misogynistic totally, yeah. assumption that a woman making a film has to be talking about herself and, and her life experience so I suppose being able to say that it's based on a book or an adaptation of something is is is, is a sort of an easy way of deflecting <laughs> that that form of criticism um you know, I, uh, there are plenty. Of, there are other British filmmakers who who constantly have that. I mean, I remember reading some of the more unsavory reviews of like Joanna Hogg's films, for example, and then like, why is she just you, you know she's just talking about her life? And it's like, well, why not? <laughs> What's wrong with that? Well, that's the thing as well. Yeah, I mean, something like the Souvenir, which you know she has said is based on kind of some of her own experiences. I'm like, well, why not? Like, I mean what makes that any less worthy of being on a big screen than those fucking Avengers? Like, it's, you know, what, why do we have to pick, like, one or the other? If it's a good film, like, and you enjoy it and you're interested and invested, then really, who are you to say, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm even using this film. What was that wonderful Stuart Lee line about Joanna Hogg's? Um, I think it was about um, uh, Archipelago, maybe? I might be wrong, but he said it was basically just middle class people going on a on a disappointing holiday, which I think is actually a very fair like line. It's like, yeah, it is. But, but that, yeah, that's what it's that, that's what it's about. It's it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's brilliant. Exactly. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you what do you want here? Like, I think mm. you know, it's British filmmaking is constantly like under attack from people who think like we shouldn't kind of make films about like the ins and outs of being a British person and, yeah. and what and, it, and it's interesting and, like, because we've seen we've seen that. we've seen that like sorry to continue going off on this but I I, I think I think that we've seen so many like upper middle class men sort of coming out of like oh, private yeah. school or, or Oxbridge or whatever and then making like films about their class and their experiences of their class but it's like <laughs> why can't a female director also like do those sorts of sort of self self reflexive critiques it's yeah I don't I just find that very very frustrating and even just (laughs) pursue like what they're interested in I mean Mm. you know we look at a film like Ratcatcher and also um I was just talking to you about Red Road as well by Andrew Arnold and 
you know, I think letting kind of a female filmmaker or pursue the kind of things that they're interested in, things to them that mean something is, you know, like it's the most basic decency that you can afford someone. It's yeah. not like a, a also novel like thing. Hulk like, trying to make Rat Catcher or Ramsey trying to make the souvenir it would just pro- <laughs> would it would it, 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 it yeah but it, it, they, they I mean I'm not saying that they wouldn't be able to do it and they wouldn't be able to mm. empathize with it but it would it wouldn't be that the nuances of those films wouldn't be mm. the same I think yeah um, absolutely and the things that we love about Joanna Hogg are not necessarily the things that we love about well they're not necessarily they're not they're not the same things yeah. that we love about um Lynn Ramsey or you know any any of the male filmmakers we we love these filmmakers and find their work interesting and worthy of conversations for very different reasons and that the the kind of um multitudes that British film contains are what keep it interesting I think it's you know it's very frustrating to see those kind of criticisms leveled especially I think when it's smaller filmmakers as well when it is like independent film that's kind of being like criticized in that way it's like well if you wanted to watch like people exploding for two hours that that is readily available to you like you know it's it is out there and there's plenty of films coming out we're not at well I mean at the moment obviously pandemic but like there are lots of films out there <laughs> there's always yeah. another choice no one's forcing you no one is Joanna Hogg or Lynn Ramsey aren't like forcing you to sit down and like <laughs> you know watch this film <laughs> maybe they should but I think maybe more people would kind of learn to appreciate yeah. <laughs> British cinema if they kind of you know if there was more um more of it available well not available but more of it just kind of like shown I think I, if I'd been exposed to this kind of cinema when I was like a 15 year old it would have like blown my mind I think I would have been like so um inspired by it and I think there's the next kind of generation I'm glad that they might be able to access these films more easily I mean Morven Keller is actually on iPlayer at the moment I think it's got about five more months on it. Um, and the idea that you yeah, know, it's, you yeah. just, just be a teenager and just go and watch that and mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. something away from it, I think is really like brilliant. I think, and the things like BFI as well, have done so much to kind of like make it feel a little bit more, de- I was going to say to democratise film. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the, the best way of putting it. They, they've kind of been trying to make these films more easily available and, even Ratcatcher, I found it on YouTube today. Someone uploaded it. Probably very illegal. It's it's like, on it's on movie you know. as well. I think it's just on oh, there. there. We go. Permanently yeah, in so the in the library. You know, I, there, there is a time then. I think when it would have been like really hard to get hold of. It. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's you know, I'm glad that people like us can watch them very easily and then have a conversation about them and kind of talk about you know the um, what we like about them, what we dislike about them, and then the kind of industry as a whole and particularly the, the British film industry because uh, so much of my work is often around American film because it's just what dominates mm. it's quite refreshing to actually just talk about like what's going on <laughs> over here and kind yeah. of all the, the struggles and what's interesting and I mean yeah it's, 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 Lynn Ramsey especially because she is someone who has like kind of gone to Hollywood now and I think her next thing is I think she I think she was announced to be doing something last year maybe oh, oh yeah, she's adapted the girl who loved tom gordon the stephen king adaptation it's another, another adaptation another adaptation she loved loves adapting those books which you know 
not mad about that. I think she she's also looking at doing a Margaret Atwood short story, right. which I think is really interesting. That would be interesting, um, yeah. Especially, yeah, because I just I still always feel like we were we were kind of robbed of her lovely bones, which is a book again that mm-hmm. like I read that at a very pivotal time in my life, and I was about fifteen, and it really like shook me <laughs> to my core. <laughs> but hers was going to be a much more like experimental approach. Because I think a lot of her films don't really bear too much of a resemblance to their source material. Like you never really hear is actually it's not not even very long, which mm. her film isn't either. But I think she brings a lot to her, yeah. a lot of her kind of self and her artistic sensibilities to mm. the films that aren't on the page. You have to kind of almost treat them as separate entities. Well, yeah, and I and I think I think that's that's what makes adaptation worth doing anyway. I mean, mm. what 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 what's the point of just like translating a film for the screen if you're not going to do something different and original with it? And I think what's so fascinating in the case of like of Morven Calder is that it's it's the books by Adam Warner and it, you know it's a male written book and it becomes this 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 film which you know it it feels so female made female directed um and and mm. Sam Morton really sort of brings that that alive that I find it hard I haven't read the book so I, I don't know how I can't compare them explicitly but I find it hard to believe that <laughs> that a man could have written something so so honest and and relatable in terms of 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 the of the experience that she goes through which is so specifically feminine I would say yeah absolutely we've not even talked about the relationship between Morven and Lana which is kind of like the whole crux of the film is you know for, for most of the film we're with the two of them and um how they you know how their friendship is kind of like central to this experience and really like seems to ground Morven she seems like so much kind of more herself when Lana's there and the way I, I absolutely love that the kind of the scene early on where the um is it is it Lana's grandmother they're with like I yes. never quite <laughs> yeah I never quite I think always think looks like Anne Widdicombe at first it's quite <laughs> alarming <laughs> <laughs> they have that they have that um all, all that kind of exchange is lovely but then yeah there's like I've already mentioned the kind of the, the bathroom scenes in her movies but they yeah they take a bath together and it's just such a like a really mm. lovely like moment of calm amid this like quite chaotic film where a lot of like there's a lot a lot going on especially mm. in the second part of the film um and they have this like very like it's this moment of just like serenity and like like for one second she kind of forgets like what's going on yeah. with her boyfriend and all the kind of chaos and carnage and and it's 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 so refreshing to see that as well I mean especially in like the lack of a male gaze and like seeing their naked bodies in the bar I mean it's not something you get it in sort of French cinema in the 70s things like Agnes Varda and (laughs) Chantal Ackerman but you do that that like candidness of just being unclothed without it being like yeah oh my god it's a woman who's got her her breasts out on screen you know it's just like it's just it's just played completely naturally and I I think that here and it's just like oh that that is that is what my body looks like (laughs) and and it's okay that it's on the screen because you just don't normally see it that way and it just exists and it's fine exactly you know it's not like a thing um it, it it reminded me of um there's a sex scene in Red Road, which is like, I, I only saw the film for the first time a few weeks ago and it like 
blew my mind because it's just you know Kate Dickey is like uh, she sort of strips down and like there's this the camera is just kind of like watching her the whole time but it's not like lavicious it's not like kind of like I, I watched Spring Breakers the same week and I mean very different films obviously but like just the way that the camera moves and you know the things that the things that the camera like settles on are just so completely separate and the, I mean in Red Road it's the sex scene so there is like a kind of you know there's a sexual element to it obviously but it it doesn't feel kind of uncomfortable to me there's a real like kind of the thing that I really got from it was that it felt like the most kind of like primal like mutual like exchange of like sexual energy that that I've seen in a very long time and that's a film made in 2006 and obviously Morven Callow's made 2002 and it yeah. still feels like we're still having these conversations about like female nudity on screen and the disparity mm. between the way women are filmed and men are filmed and it still seems to be like something that people can't really wrap their heads around yeah. Yeah, and and like it, it specifically, like the bathtub scene is like a trope of mm. of sort of queer cinema of like having having gay couples in the bath together. So it yeah. has to be sexualized. In this film, it's it's just they're they're so obviously just friends. It doesn't need it doesn't need to have that that layer to it. There's no like you know I I you couldn't describe this as like there's no gays present at all it's not a female yeah, gaze. like exactly. people have been talking about like um portrait of a lady on fire and 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 sort of how you sort of switch it it's still sort of sexual but it's 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 different because it's it's coming from a lesbian mm. perspective that's not present here you know it's it'd be it would be very hard to talk about homosexuality in this film because i just don't think it's there at all I would say. No, no, um, I think you're right. It is a complete lack of gaze. It's just that state of being and just yeah. like it being a kind of non-issue. And I think that the, the other scene, the other kind of scene with um, nudity in the film where she's like, um, where she's disposing of the body. I feel like this podcast is going to have us saying disposing of the body so many times as we lose <laughs> our meaning, but um, where, she, where she's, she's naked because she's disposing of the body. And it's like a total like practicality thing. It's like, yeah, mm. well, she's naked because she doesn't want to get blood in her clothes because she's disposing of her body. <laughs> and that's like a really like a kind of nitpicky thing. But like it, it, it just like, it just, as someone who's watched like so many crime shows and like kind of picks up on all that stuff, I just, I was like, Duh, yeah like obviously it makes so much sense and like to see it kind of like not even be like a question yes. is just like so so refreshing and it is I, funny though that she does it like with a trowel that's enough of like <laughs> <laughs> touch of surreal comedy that's um, what's funny is that like she's clearly thought about it enough that like she's not got any clothes on but not enough that she's like using like a trowel <laughs> it's, like, it's and, probably and, all she, you know, she had thought, She's thought about it enough to like take the Walkman like to her leg yeah. and everything. <laughs> it's, just, it's yeah, like you say, I think it's it, it, that there's like so many things within that like one scene where you're like, okay, song choice weird for a start. Like yes. taped Walkman trial. Like there's just loads of kind of like elements that certainly when you watch it again, you're like, hang on a second, <laughs> like, mm. what is going on here? But she is like, I mean, she. I think she's again. There's that scene in Ratcatcher where James um, is taking a bath, and like, th again, like the, the nudity is just kind of like, again, like nothing. It's just it, it's so far away from being like anything sexualized. It's just like this moment of like calm and peace. So I think that idea of like water as 
cleansing comes back in again and yeah. again in um we need to talk about kevin is that i remember that was i remember been kind of very shocked at the time there's like a, a is it the scene with the tomatoes i saw yes. the symptoms like the, tom- the and, like spanish tomato festival thing yeah 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 and it is like that total kind of like lack of anything (laughs) 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 i i that i i find very refreshing because sometimes you just want to be you know you you don't want to be anything (laughs) yeah and it's 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 something that as i said you sort of see it in 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 some european cinema particularly in um french films but in America, everyone still takes in films. They all still take showers and baths in in their underwear, which is ludicrous because nobody does that. Um, it's like, why is he wearing swimming trunks in the shower? It's like, because God help us if we act, if we see like, <laughs> a nude body. It's um, and I think that that's to some extent an influence of of censorship and sort of the, the ratings bodies that are like putting things mm. what you can and can't do like do you really want a film your film to be given like a 15 or an 18 rating just because people are naked in it it's sort of this incredible imagery in Morven Keller of like the death of the male author in a sort of Rodan <laughs> Bart way and then like she literally sits down and changes the name to, to her own and then makes it her own product it's like maybe that's the biographical element of it Lynn Ramsey's like (laughs) yeah we're gonna push (laughs) push that out I I'm here to like put my stamp on I love that yeah yeah I love that interpretation (laughs) and I think it's it's such a like in history there's been kind of loads of instances of like women being erased um women's contributions to literature have been erased and Mm. women having to take male names to like pass off work as their own Mm. it is like a again it's like a little funny like kind of moment where she's like no I'm good (laughs) I just love the fact that she doesn't even she doesn't even read it and then like she's talking to like the 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 eight the publishers about it and they're like what's your next book and she's like i'm on holiday <laughs> that 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 in itself is a bizarre scene she's like in her bikini and, relatable, they're, like... and they've like flown out to spain <laughs> to talk to her and offer her a book deal and it's just like do you think we do this with everyone <laughs> that moment as well like watching it again to record this podcast it's such a like i felt this very like kind of um even though i know like he's she's stolen this book from her boyfriend who died um I felt this real like kind of protectiveness of her because they're the agents are so clearly like a little bit unscrupulous and kind of like that you can tell like when she's like telling them like about her job she's like oh I work in a supermarket and they're like laughing because they don't think she's serious There's, there's this like this kind of like element of like this you know working class girl who's stumbled across this like opportunity and and realizes that 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 world isn't somewhere like she's gonna Mm -hmm. fit in so she like you know she decides to go off and make her own path and I felt this real like kind of protectiveness of her I was like oh more than and I was I was kind of I felt very like happy that she kind of she does escape in a way like she does like you know she's on her own at the end of it you know she kind of uh, landed like says oh my life is here and there is that like real like kind of for a moment I felt like deeply like worried for her but I don't know it's like this weird moment when she's in that club at the end and and listening to um her Walkman which again like very funny scene 
and one of the best songs, songs ever, which is <laughs> dedicated to oh, the one God. I love, which is so uh, heartbreakingly romantic. And it's just like, it's, 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 it, it sort of packs this punch of like, oh, like, did you love your boyfriend? Because you're never really sure. It's like, she doesn't really, everyone's sort of like, oh, I'm really sorry for, you know, that your boyfriend's gone. And then like, and she's just, she just doesn't show any emotion about that. And then at the end we get this like, this sort of dull stare at the camera with like the diegetic music, which she's she's listening to in a club. So she's clearly listening to something that no one else is listening to. And it's like, it's the mothers and the puffers. <laughs> so it's like, what, yeah. what what's going on there? There's <laughs> such a complex idea in the way that it like then becomes more obviously diegetic. There's the credits start to roll and it. You could it's sort of the sound quality changes to like what it would sound like in earphones is, it's really, it's a really powerful ending. I mean, I, I think it's one of the best endings I've ever seen. I really love that scene. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's, I mean, you're, yeah, you're right for a start. Like one of the most romantic songs ever. And whenever it gets used in popular culture, I like comparing it to that theme because that is like the pinnacle for me. It's like, well, if you can't achieve what Lynn Ramsey did in Morbid Color, <laughs> maybe don't use that song. Um, but yeah, it is just like, that whole thread throughout the film of like what was their actual relationship here Mm. because you know he cheated on her with her best friend which is an incredibly shitty thing to do despite the best friend being like it was just a quick shag it wasn't even even that good (laughs) (laughs) like it's a very very again like a very funny moment in the film um yeah and Mormon (laughs) seems to have like kind of no reaction to it at all like she's just like like shrug <laughs> well, she doesn't seem to really have a reaction <laughs> to anything and I think that's what's so no. I think that's always been true of, of Sam Morton's acting that she does just have this incredibly good ability to just act sort of neutral that you don't, you never know mm. what's going on in that brain of hers like that you know that she knows like <laughs> Samantha Morton <laughs> is clearly ill on it she's made a decision and she knows what's going on but she's not <laughs> letting us know what it is. And there's something really compelling about that, I think. Absolutely. I think very much like Lynn Ramsey, it's like there's a distance between you as a viewer and her as an actress. And you're like, you, you it's like a puzzle box where you're like trying to like work it out. And like, you're like, oh, what's going on in there? You need yeah. to know. And you never quite, I don't think you ever quite get to the bottom of it. And mm. it's, that, that performance is just so deeply fascinating. Because yeah, like you say, like, things just kind of wash over her it seems like you know she just is very happy for life to just happen around her but then she is very clearly in control of the situation like you know she makes this decision she's going to Spain she decides that she's leaving Spain she decides that she's going off on her own and we never really see her I mean you see these kind of glimpses of her being like kind of happy with uh, Lana and like you know uh, in that first nightclub scene um Again, she seems like kind of happier that he is dead, to be honest, which is like, you know, interesting. Mm. Um, but then at the same time, like, he, you know, this mixtape that he left her, that he mm. gave, gave her for Christmas, like, has all these, because that's what we hear her listening to throughout the film. Like, it has all these really, really romantic songs on. Like, it has, like, I'm Sticking With You, which obviously takes on this incredibly, like, creepy, like, meaning when we, when we see yeah. her carving up his dead body to it but um yeah the mom was impassive so you think like there must have been something there for him to like leave this to her yeah and and it's quite nostalgic as well like by contrast to 
the other music that's not on that mixtape in the film, which is like, I don't mm, know. So sort of, modern. Yeah, exactly. It's, this is this real contrast to like these sort of like Nancy Sinatra, Mamas and Papas. And yeah. Like <laughs> classic sort of um, romantic songs. And it's like, yeah, there's a really strange clash there in, in terms of the period of, of those those songs I think no absolutely and it, it adds I think it adds another layer to like the story you're like well you know kind of just just what what was going on there what was that relation what was the book about there's so many questions that are never like never answered and ultimately like they don't matter like it doesn't really have any impact on the story but I think it's I just like that there's clearly so many other parts to this puzzle of the film and so many questions that we never get an answer to and I think it's the same in all her films there are so many things that we just never like yeah never find out what happened or never find out kind of the context mm. yeah never and you, ha- you have to read like... those other elements of like the songs the music and then yeah. also like it particularly in this film more so perhaps than her other films is the the lighting the way that like those red sort of lights pulsate in the club and the, the christmas nights when she's at home and sort of in the background and like covering her face in like red light and, and darkness and it's like so what is she feeling <laughs> is this like do, do, are we seeing this as like con- connoting something in terms of how she's feeling or is that just completely unrelated and it's just like her environment it's it's it yeah it, it really it keeps you hooked and staring at the screen which is which I know should be obvious with films but it's it's very often it's really not, not. <laughs> no. I think um, there's like that element of being mesmerized is like such a constant in her work and that even when I am like deeply like disturbed I still kind of can't like look away from it and it really starts in more than color as soon as the film starts I mean I think that kind of opening with her lying on the floor with with his body and you at that point you have no idea you know it's just mm-hmm. like oh just two people you know, lying in bed <laughs> and then like that that like zoom out and it's like oh you see like the kind of the, that juxtaposition of like the, the blood on the floor with the christmas lights like blinking and it's just like there's just so i find that i find her film so so rich in kind of what they give me to like unpack as a viewer and such a kind of even a stark and as kind of like brutal <laughs> as they often are I just yeah I, I think they are real like kind of very stimulating as a viewer and yeah. very like very engaging and I, I just I, I never I know that like whatever she does like whether it's a short film or a feature film I know I'm not I'm never going to be bored like even if I don't like it although I have liked everything um I, I always know that I'm gonna there's gonna be like a visual kind of intrigue which is right. I can't say that for every filmmaker like you say I think you know. um it's I think it's it's a very rare gift as a filmmaker to be able to kind of like consistently have like command an audience's attention the way that she does yeah definitely and, I, th- know, I, I think make, you, you've make... definitely convinced me to like go back and watch <laughs> we need to talk about Kevin and you were never really here again because I, I feel like may, may, maybe I just didn't have like the cine literacy or like the ability to sort of read those elements of those films when I first saw them because I was quite a bit younger and I hadn't really um seen a lot of films of that type I suppose mm. so, so maybe may, may, yeah it's definitely something that I'll do um <laughs> hopefully form form a slightly more concrete opinion of them than I than I, I previously mean, had she is, she is one of the most 
kind of divisive modern filmmakers, I would say. You know, I know so many people that really hate when you talk about Kevin, really hate you never really hear. I mean, the, the uh, Rotten Tomatoes page for you never hear is hilarious because it literally <laughs> is just like pretty split between the people that really liked him and people that absolutely loathed it. And I, it's funny because like, you know, with other critics, I have to kind of be like, well, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. But sometimes you read these reviews and you're like, you just have no idea what you're talking about, do you, mate? Yeah. <laughs> he is like definitely one of the filmmakers, along with Andrew Arnold, I'd say, because American Honey got some really interesting reviews. Um, he's someone uh, yeah. that I think people do kind of don't really quite know what to make out, mm. make of her work, or or just react out of total kind of repulsion. And then, like, I mean, I know a couple of people who rewatched You Never Really Here after hating it and actually completely did a 180 and were like, it took me another viewing to kind of get into, like, what the film is doing and yeah. how it's doing it. So I think it's, you know, she's someone that is always kind of worth um, a, re- a re-evaluation in yeah. people's minds or, like, a, just a kind of, like, a second a second go. I'm always, like, telling telling people to go on. I'm like, go on, watch it again. Watch it again. <laughs> I Having said that, I need to rewatch Freeze and what Kevin because that is solely like I I can still remember watching that so strongly. Mm. I've not bothered to rewatch it because right, I had yeah, such a visceral yeah, work. it, it has quite like a distinctive impression. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was lovely to speak to you and to do this podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, lovely to see you. <laughs> All right then. Bye. Yeah, really nice to see you. <laughs> see you. Bye. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Croft with three hours in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip!